Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, how about that debate last night, huh? Oh, man, come on. Whoa. I'm ready to talk about it. Here we go. Your Ben Drosky Show for Thursday, February 20th. It's just moments away. But before we get into that, we got to thank the following unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. Unions like the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9 are sponsors, as well as the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. Hey, thanks, unions. And, of course, today's Ben Jarofsky Show <laughs> is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J., we need a song of the day, sir. Well, you know, in honor of a certain guest that will be in this building today, but not probably on our show, unless I'm stunned, uh, I'm going to sing the greatest hits. I'm going to do a medley, D. Greatest hits of the Eagles. Desperado, oh, why don't yeah. you come to your senses? Jimmy, That's one. Jimmy Pritzker's in the Sun-Times <laughs> building today. And, and what's the one they do in the Big Lebowski? Um, and then um, Jeff Bridges' character, Big Lebowski gets so much. Could you not play the Eagles? I hate the beep and the Eagles. And the cab driver throws them out. One of the greatest scenes in my... Oh, take it easy. Anyway, that's about it for me in the... Oh! What's the other one? Tequila Sunrise. Anyway, that's my Eagles medley in honor of J.B. Pritzker. He loves the Eagles, yeah, ladies He's and in gentlemen. the Sun-Times building. Probably not coming to our studio, but we're right by the bathroom. So he may be walking in the bathrooms and he just hears a... Uh... I'm not a perfect person. <laughs> huh, where'd that come from? By the way, if he does uh, head in our direction, J.B., this is a little advice. If you're in the Sun-Times, you're heading by the bathrooms, check out the water fountain. Smaller water fountain, all right? Don't go to the big one. Smaller water fountain. Oh, yeah, you don't think... Uh, this guy's just got bottled water. Oh, well, forget everything I said, JB. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Thursday, February 20th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, in these times, writer Bronco Marchetic will join us. Not Miles Camflas and Bronco Marchetic. Union man Don Villar makes his long-awaited return, and we welcome Danica McMillan. And now your host, he loves the Sun-Times water fountain. <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Smoking Joe Thursday. And here's why I got so much on my mind, D. I don't know where to start. Let's start with number one. J.B. Pritzker's in the building. Governor Pritzker's in the building. Yes, indeed. We said this already. I'll be coming by the Sun-Times for an editorial board meeting where he's going to promote his budget. Now, he's probably not going to stop by here, but just in case, D, how many times I got to tell you, take those pizza cartons and remove them. Oh, my goodness. Sorry. Okay? Sorry. Got a governor in the building. And that bong. Get rid of the... Well, oh, One wait. more hit. <laughs> wait, it's legal now. So <laughs> keep the bong. Okay. Although, I think that bud you got there is not from one of the dispensaries, if I'm correct on that one, young man. 
Anyway, I bumped into Tom McNamee, the uh, editor of the editorial board, one of the editors. Tommy Mac. Tommy Mac. It's always a blast talking to uh, politics with young Tom McNamee, the pride and joy of Bogan High School in the Southwest Side. He is one of the chief editorial writers for the Chicago Sun-Times. He was at the bagel store. I was dutifully buying bagels for a dentist and myself, and I bumped him in. We were talking. We got into a great conversation uh, about the issue of... Is it right for someone to be a billionaire? And that was a topic that was raised in last night's debate. Get into that later. And uh, Tom McNamee had some very interesting thoughts. He said no. And we're going to bring him on to have this as a larger discussion. And this is Tom just speaking as Tom, not representing anybody at the Chicago Sun-Times. It's just Tom speaking as Tom. Very fascinating insights on the inequity of allowing someone like Michael Bloomer to accumulate so much money. Got to say, McNamee kind of had me thinking, D., Blew my mind a little bit. So good job, Tom Mack. We're going to bring you on to take a deeper dive in that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, come on, got to talk about last night's debate. And as I was telling Dean, we have a lot of fun. We've watched every single debate, or I've watched every. In fact, Dennis, let's give him a hand, folks. He has watched every single debate. We have some of our guests who come in, and they're like, you know, I don't watch debates. Oh, is that an impression <laughs> of anyone in particular? Sounds a little like McDuffie. <laughs> Just saying. I'm too important. I have things to watch. Uh, I don't watch debates until at the end. You know, they like don't watch the debate until it's like, what, two people in the debate, and then it's worth their while to watch it. Well, anyway, we've been watching the debates, uh, and here's the thing about watching the debates. You get to see, uh, you get to watch as the candidates develop their debating skills. They get a little tougher, a little smarter, a little sharper. Uh, They learn the tricks of getting their message out. And those who have not participated in the debates, well, they don't know how the game is played. And that leads me to a certain gazillionaire from New York City named Michael Bloomberg. Michael, I'm going to tell you something that uh, your hanger-ons will not tell you. You got your butt whooped last night at that debate. That's correct. (laughs) I mean, God dang. (laughs) Whoa. Started with Elizabeth Warren. I said, Smoke and Joe. I'm going to have to help millennial listeners out here, D. Smoke and Joe Frazier, one of the greatest heavyweight champs. Love you, Smoke and Joe from the 70s. Pride and joy of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They should have a statue for Joe Frazier on City Hall steps, not Rocky. Anyway, we're going to move on from that. I know the things I get upset about. I'm just laughing at everybody (laughs) making fun of your singing on the live stream. (laughs) It was a medley, okay? In honor of Pritzker. Anyway. Where was I? Oh, yes. Elizabeth Warren. Uh, folks, if you saw that debate, you know she came out. So you got that bit, D, to play it? No? All right. Oh, no, what? Right. From last night? Yeah. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. <laughs> Democrats are not going to win if we have a nominee who has a history of hiding his tax returns, of harassing women women and of supporting racist policies like redlining and stop and frisk. Look, I'll support whoever the Democratic nominee is, but understand this. Democrats take a huge risk if we just substitute one arrogant billionaire for another. This country has worked for the rich for a long time and left everyone else in the dirt. It is time to have a president who will be on the side of working families and 
be willing to get out there and fight for them. That is why I am in this race, and that is how I will beat Donald Trump. Senator, we got to wait for Klobuchar. <laughs> Whoa! Bloomberg's Whoa. looking at oh, that dirty. <laughs> Whoa! No, I know. All this time, I you know, my rankings has always been Bernie one. Elizabeth, I gotta say, after last night, Elizabeth Warren is coming strong after you, Bernie. You're so easy. Oh, my, oh that was a first class butt whoop last night. It you know, was. You know who the happiest man in the city of Chicago is? Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson, Commissioner Cook County Commissioner from the West Side, was at the hideout debating Carlos Ramirez Rosa. It was he was uh, representing Elizabeth. Carlos was representing Bernie. You know, Carlos was coming strong. But last night, Elizabeth Warren showed why she's in the race. And I'll tell you something. What was Bloomberg's response? Here's Bloomberg's response. I will now imitate it. Habit, habit, habit. That's correct. <laughs> Poor Bloomberg. You know, you got to look, here's the problem, Mike. I'm going to just say it to you, OK, because you, you you pay all these guys. They tell tell you what they want to you want to hear. They tell you what a great guy you are, how wonderful you are. The reality is, by the way, if you pay me, I'll tell you you're great. Hey, by the way, yeah, it's it's not like I'm against that. OK, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, well, I could pay me a million bucks. A million bucks is nothing to this guy, D. You know, a million bucks is the equivalent of the tip I gave the the person, people at the bagel counter today. Uh, here, give Dennis a million bucks to shut the other guy up. Oh, give me a million <laughs> bucks. I will not be here tomorrow. Uh, that is not true. Ben who? <laughs> you'll, uh-uh, you'll, you'll be able to hire other people that have the show even expand with that a million bucks. Anyway, uh, Michael Bloomberg looks stunned. He's not used to people talking to him this way. He's a gazillionaire. Well, I've never. <laughs> and I also think that Michael Bloomberg suffers from a little disease uh, that I like to call Romitis. And what is Romitis? It's named for our former mayor here in the city of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. It's called, it's like, I'm smart and you're not. And uh, <laughs> take a chill pill, man. I knew you were going to play it. And uh, yes. Just like Rom, Bloomberg thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, and he clearly is not. And Elizabeth Warren showed that last night, and she gave him a beatdown. And uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, my friends of the centrist persuasion, they always are giving me grief about Bernie. They're always telling me that there's no way Bernie can win. They tell me that. Hey, Monroe Anderson. <laughs> there's many more besides Monroe. Trust me when I tell you that. Uh, they're always telling me that uh, Donald Trump will be airing commercials blasting uh, Bernie as a socialist. They'll link uh, those commercials will link socialism to communism. And somehow or other, he will be magically transformed uh, into Fidel Castro, which is sort of Chris Matthews position on the whole matter. Uh, and Bloomberg tried that last night at the debate. D. I don't know if you caught that, where uh, he he essentially called Bernie Sanders a communist. Um, he learned from he's taking a page from the Chris Matthews. Yeah, Chris playbook. Matthews like, yeah, <laughs> my guy. Finally, someone <laughs> has Denmark. And and by the way, uh, Bloomberg's probably his best counterpunch of the night was when he came strong at Bernie about ha uh, the, being a socialist who's a millionaire and has three homes. Did you hear that one, D? And uh, yeah, because Bernie owns three homes. He's got one in Washington, where, you know, because he's a senator. He's there all the time. He's got one in Vermont, and then he's got a vacation home. All right. So uh, then Bernie came. Oh, I have three homes. I'll tell you what they are, and uh, so I know that if Bernie Sanders uh, is the uh, Nominate, nominee of the Democratic Party, that Donald Trump will be hitting him hard, picking up that theme. Absolutely. You know it. Uh, he's going to try to present uh, Bernie as a hypocrite because he's a millionaire. 
accumulated a lot of money up from the sales of his books, and he owns three homes. So we know that's coming, all right? But we also know, based on that opening salvo from Elizabeth Warren, what to expect on Donald Trump commercials regarding Michael Bloomberg. It's not like he's impervious to it all, folks. He's got a lot of baggage he's bringing you centrists out there who love Michael Bloomberg. I'm just trying to tell you. It works two ways. Centrists are always telling me, man, wait till we get to the general election. Your boy Bernie won't be able to withstand the the pounding that'll come from Trump's commercials. Oh, yeah? Well, what about your guy? What about Bloomy? Huh? He's going to get crushed by those commercials from Donald Don Trump. So this is my uh, counterpoint to the centrists who love Michael Bloomberg. And it really goes both ways. It goes for every single candidate on that stage. As we saw last night, when the Democrats took off their gloves and went after each other strong, they expose the weaknesses of each candidate. And you can expect that Donald Trump's campaign will pound away at those weaknesses. You cannot live in fear of what Donald Trump's campaign is going to do to your candidate. If he's your candidate, if you believe that this person represents your worldview the best, if you believe that this person is best equipped to beat Donald Trump or a combination of their both, then you should vote for him. You shouldn't live in fear of what Donald Trump will do in the campaign because what he can do to Bernie he can do to Bloomberg. He can do to absolutely everybody who was on that stage. I'm going to make a prediction, D. Whenever the next debate is, and I don't have the schedule in front of me, I predict that Bloomberg will come back more prepared and better. I cannot believe this guy's gotten through life so ill-equipped to defend himself from assault in a debate. I got to think he's smarter on his feet than that. I got to think he can come back with a counterpunch. And, I, you know, he's got all these strategists getting hundreds of thousands of dollars from him. They got to come up with something resembling a strategy. I have to believe that Michael Bloomberg will do better uh, in the next debate. Uh, if he doesn't, oh, centrist, centrist, centrist. You might want to go back to Joe Biden. We got a great show today, everybody. Yes, indeed. A Bronco Marchetic will be here. Wait, where's Miles? I know you love Miles on Thursday. Miles is busy. I think he's on the coast, D. Hanging out with, you know, like cool people on the coast. Uh, well, that's actually, the opposite of his typical Thursday. <laughs> actually, I have no idea where he is. He told me and I forgot, but uh, he he uh, has another In These Times writer. Bronco was all fired up to talk about the debates, presidential election, lots of national political talk with Bronco. Uh, Don Villar from the Chicago Federation of Labor here. We're talking Pritzker budget talk. We've got a lot of labor news with Don Villar. We're talking some Blago stuff with him. Don was a news writer for many years. We have... Mark Brown, can we give Mark Brown a shout out, D? His column in today's Sun-Times was <laughs> hilarious about uh, Blago Gate, the Blago show that uh, took place at outside of Blago's house yesterday. We'll get into it a little with Don Villar. Great column by Mark Brown. Hey, Sun-Times, give Mark Brown a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Um, Danica McMillan will be in the studio, the Democratic candidate for state rep in the 41st district. That's out in DuPage County. Love when Dems run strong in Republican districts. Love when they flip those Republican districts. So we'll be talking to her how to win uh, in DuPage County. Lots of political talk ahead of us. But before we do any of that, the young man from Alton, the man downstate, they call Dr. Doobie with the news. No one calls me that. How's it going, everybody? Let's unpack what's happening in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon. Both our Illinois governor and Chicago mayor were at the UIC campus today. Mm. Yeah, and we begin with the Chicago mayor. 
Today, Mayor Lori Lightfoot spoke at a UIC forum to deliver welcoming remarks at the city's STEP Summit. STEP is solutions toward ending poverty. Mm. Here's a little bit of that. Since I began the campaign for this office, I've visited every neighborhood. I've seen everything that makes Chicago strong, but also everything we as a city have failed to confront for generations. The roots of poverty and hardship run deep in our city. Entrenching residents in seemingly inescapable cycles of joblessness, disinvestment, and ultimately despair and loss of dignity. Now, I'm not going to go through it all now, but I want to make sure that we are starting from the same place with the same set of facts. One in every five Chicagoans lives in poverty, a level virtually unchanged over the last 20 years. One in every 10 live in extreme poverty, also unchanged in the last 20 years. Put simply, these folks must try to make it on $8.50 a day. Consider how impossible that is. Uh, this is a side of Lori Lightfoot that does not get a, enough attention. Uh, and it, perhaps because it seems contrasted by some of the stances she's taken on crucial issues like Lincoln Yards, uh, the, the huge uh, TIF handout on the north side. But I applaud Lori Lightfoot when she talks like this. And this is why I voted for her, D. When she came to the hideout uh, to, for the first Tuesday show with McDumkey and myself, that's how she talked. And she talked like a very progressive candidate. And the other day she gave a speech, it was sort of lost uh, in the weeds. She gave it on a Friday, and it, uh, Fran Spielman wrote a good write-up in the Sun-Times when it ran Saturday when no one was paying attention to the news cycle, unfortunately, about the need to abolish poverty in the city of Chicago. I can't imagine Mayor Rahm ever making a speech remotely like that, or Mayor Daley. The, Mayor Rahm and Mayor Daley were dedicated to the proposition that the best thing for the city of Chicago was not to help people who are really poor, but to move them out of Chicago. That was that was like their chief goal. They never came out and say it, said it. Of course they wouldn't say it. You know, that's they're too politically correct to say it, but that's what their planning department was doing by uh, massively, massively subsidizing what the gentrification of neighborhoods all around the city, all around the loop in and out of the downtown area, uh, making it more expensive to live in Chicago. So Lori Lightfoot, it's I, I want to see where she goes with this, like what specificity she has this. But I do like the fact that uh, she's willing to stand up and speak out for people who are really living on on the edge. Uh, you know, this teasingly, my, Michael Bloomberg and my centrist friends, Bloomberg has a wretched record, folks, on this issue. The issue of affordability, the issue of a minimum wage. He, he's opposed these things in the past, and he used, he's used his uh, bully pulpit to undercut them. And that's too much of the Democratic Party plays that game. You know, they feel as though, well, to win re-election, we have to appeal appeal to people who have just sort of disdainful attitude toward the poor and uh, an attitude that wealthy people have the money they have because somehow or other they're better than everybody else. This is what Tom McNamee and I were getting at in our little conversation at the bagel shop. And so when I hear Lori Lightfoot going in a different direction and talking about society's need to help people uh, who are most exposed. I have to applaud her. This is what Democrats are supposed to believe in. These are the values that the Democratic Party are supposed to uphold. So I applaud Lori Lightfoot when she talks this way, D. Just want to see the follow through.
All right. In the afternoon, Lightfoot will participate in a separate conversation about poverty in Chicago. And yes, we're still talking about former Illinois Governor Rob Blagojevich. Mm. President Donald Trump commuted his 14-year prison sentence earlier in the week. He gave a press conference at his home about it. Praised Donald Trump. His chin was bleeding from a razor cut. It was awkward. Mayor Lightfoot took some time to weigh in on Blago's bailout, and it should come as no surprise, she's not a fan. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times, and Ben, guess who? France Billman. You got it, Fran the Woe Man Spielman. Lightfoot has already declared her opposition to President Donald Trump's decision to commute Rob Lagojevich's sentence and free the former governor from federal prison four years early. On Wednesday, Lightfoot made what she promised will be her final comments on Blagojevich's release and the former governor's bravado claims of being a, quote, freed political prisoner. It's a subject that clearly annoys her to no end. Here's some of the audio from the mayor's press conference. Of the things that are going on in the city, the needs that are great, what our residents need. Dealing with Rob Boyovich doesn't even make a list. So I'll say this, and this hopefully will be the last thing that I say. Every week, every month, there are men and women who return from uh, incarceration, particularly from the uh, Illinois Department of Corrections, into the city, many times in more circumstances than what they left. None of those people are going to get the kind of attention that you're apparently going to pay to Rob Ogoyevich, and that's a shame, because many of them have great needs, great needs that we are trying to address as a city. But the difference between most of them and Rob Ogoyevich is that they accept responsibility for the crimes that they committed. They are willing to do what's necessary to make amends for the harm that they caused. You know, some people say, well, don't you have sympathy for his family? I have sympathy for every family, mine included where you have a loved one who's incarcerated. It does terrible things to the, to the members of the family that are outside. But what I would expect, and we have not seen, is one ounce of contrition from this man who held the highest office in our state and used it in a way that is shameful and that as a consequence of his prosecution and conviction by a jury of his peers, still, still has no capacity for acceptance of responsibility. So that's the last that I hope I will ever say about my I agree with her 100% uh, with this little caveat. It's not the last you've heard of Rob Goyevich, so don't pretend that you're not going to have to speak out about it again. Got to give Justin Horowitz credit one more time. He was on this show on Tuesday. As the news was breaking, he point-blank predicted that Rod Bogoyevich would become an operative for Donald Trump in the upcoming presidential election. Somehow or other, part of Donald Trump's strategy to win over black voters will be to use Rod Bogoyevich as a spokesperson. And Rod Bogoyevich, you could tell, he is eager to take on this assignment because, number one, he appreciates Donald John Trump for getting out of federal prison. And number two, he, like Trump suffers from what I mean this grandiose ego to think as though he did nothing wrong and he's an innocent victim of a government overreach it's a, uh, it's a worldview that he shares with Donald Trump and as such he has now turned himself into a political prisoner that's what he said what a freaking joke to anybody who really is a political prisoner in this country for anybody who was punished for daring to speak out in a real legitimate way against the inequities we have in this country Rob Bukovic did not go to prison because he was speaking out against inequities. Rod Blagojevich did not go to the federal pen. He was not persecuted and prosecuted by federal investigators because he was like Fred Hampton. 
He was speaking out against racism. He was speaking out against poverty. He did not, he was not like Martin Luther King who gave up his life and fought part of a greater struggle that was more important than himself. No. Rob Bukovic went to prison because he was shaking, he was using his power as the governor of this Illinois to shake people down for money. Now, you could say, well, the government overreached. You could say that the government wasn't fair in how they, uh, they released only certain tapes of Blagojevich's conversation. That's all. You can have that conversation. I'm willing to have that conversation. But let's not pretend that Rob Bukovic is the second coming of Nelson Mandela. Rob Bukovic is a con artist. He conned the city of Chicago, the, the voters of the 5th Congressional District, into electing their congressman, predicting that somehow or other he would be less corrupt than Danny Rosinkowski, who was the Democrat who held the office before him. He conned the people of the state of Illinois into electing them as their governor, not once, but twice. And he went to federal prison because he was essentially selling off the government to the highest bidder. So let's not feel sorry for Rod Bogoyevich as always an innocent victim. But I got to tell you, folks, he's a smooth operator. He's unflappable. He's Trump-like in his ability just to uh, draw media attention and to get people fired up. And he will be a very useful asset for Donald Trump in the coming months. That's all what, and you know what? You can already see it, man. I love it. The one part about this story I love to death is watching the Chicago Tribune's editorial board duck and dodge on this one because to them, Rob Blagojevich has been a very useful uh, symbol of democratic corruption. They use him all the time to try to bash the Democrats and uh, propel people like Bruce Rauner to undercut unions. That's all it's about. It's all anti-union strategy. Come on, folks. You're smarter than that to fall for that uh, Chicago Tribune editorial garbage. All right? And uh, so that's what it's all about. Now, all of a sudden, Do uh, Rob Blagojevich will be part of the same anti-union team uh, headed by Donald Trump. Tribune won't know what to do. They'll all be wearing MAGA hats together. By the way, I'm wearing my MAGA hat today. That's a dude. Bulls hat, guys. <laughs> For those who download, he's not wearing a MAGA hat. So, you know. We want listeners. <laughs> so I'm just taking great delight in watching this unfold. A little d disbelief that uh, Trump and Blago feel as though uh, Blagojevich can bring over voters, particularly black voters. I'm going to watch this one unfold. Very interesting. On today's Sun-Times, uh, Rob Blagojevich was liking himself to Dred Scott. Take a deep dive, folks, and read about the Dred Scott case uh, from the 1850s, just before the Civil War. So, you know, look, there's no end to the chutzpah of Rob Blagojevich or Donald Trump. They're linked together. And uh, if you think you've heard the last of Rob Blagojevich, Lori Lightfoot, uh-uh. Get ready. You're probably going to have to talk about him for many weeks to come. Yes, Rob Blagojevich coming soon to a Trump rally near you. No collusion. <laughs> and I can't stress it enough, guys. Not a MAGA hat he's wearing. It's <laughs> no, a Bulls no. hat. Bulls hat, man. Come on. Tell your friends about the show. Stay loyal to the Bulls. Stay loyal to the Bulls. All right, moving on. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. Big problems <laughs> become big problems uh. when you let small problems sit. Yes, our governor was at UIC Daily Library to discuss increased investments in higher education in his FY21 budget pro uh, proposal. I can talk. Later, he'll be at, surprise, surprise, the Thompson Center to speak at Secretary of State Jesse White's Black History Month celebration. 
now, as suspected, because uh, of all the blogo talk, our current Illinois governor, whether he likes it or not, has taken the back seat in all of the Illinois headlines this week. And, well, the same can be said for our show as well. The governor gave his 2021 budget address on Wednesday, and we have barely talked about it. That is until today. <laughs> By the way, for what it's worth, Pritzker gave a statement regarding Blogapalooza. Remember, years before becoming governor, and thanks to, thank God, former Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner, we learned that Pritzker played a minor role in this. Did he not, Ben? Absolutely. Uh, this was uh, one of our favorite topics of uh, 2018 and 2017 uh, because the um, Rauner, uh, the Rauner campaign thought this was the secret to defeating uh, Pritzker. God, I'm getting all my uh, billionaires mixed up. But anyway. Don't you uh, hate when that happens? I know. Uh, back in the day, in about 2008, after Barack Obama uh, was elected president of the United States, uh, there was a process where everybody was trying to figure out who was going to be appointed by Blagojevich to fill that vacancy. Uh, and uh, suddenly, uh, lots of different people were reaching out to Blagojevich, uh, asking him, you know, to consider them or to consider their friends. Uh Rahm Emanuel reached out to Bogoyevich. Some Rahm thought Rahm was being offered uh, the job of being chief of staff for uh, Barack Obama, and so Rahm thought, "I know, I didn't want he didn't want to give up his congressional seat." So what he wanted uh, Prince uh, Bogoyevich to do was to appoint uh, who had Forrest Claypool to uh, fill Rahm's uh, vacancy, and then um, Rahm would, after a year or two in the White House, come back. Uh, and say, all right, Forrest, beat it and take the job back. He didn't even realize that Blagojevich didn't have the capability. The capa it's not the, the government's authority, the governor's authority to fill congressional vacancies. But uh, Pritzker went to Blagojevich as well to talk about appointment. He wanted some kind of appointment, uh, and they were trashing various politicians. Uh, it's interesting, Blagojevich was trashing various black politicians in the state of Illinois. Uh, somehow or other, that tape found its way to the Chicago Tribune. It was front-page news. Uh, Rounders people were using it joyfully in commercials. They thought, ah, this is the ticket to defeat Pritzker, right? Well, what happened? Donald John Trump cut him off at the knees by talking about how uh, Pritzker, excuse me, Bogoyevich was the innocent victim of government overreach. And he's, he was already thinking about commuting the sentence. Poor Rounder. Because you know, all those MAGA hat wearers and the Republican uh, Party were like, oh, if Donald Trump tells us Bogoyevich is a good guy, we believe Bogoyevich is a good guy. And so suddenly Rauner lost his campaign issue, to which I said, ha, 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 na, 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 because all, all Rauner was going to do is use it as an attempt to destroy unions in the state of Illinois. So that is the little history of Blago and Pritzker. Pritzker said of Blago's commute, quote, President Trump has abused his pardon power in inexplicable ways to reward his friends and condone corruption. Pritzker continued identifying Trump's actions as a pardon instead of a commutation. Quote, and I deeply believe this pardon sends the wrong message at the wrong time. Well, you know, it's not inexplicable. We all know why he did it. Uh, Trump did it for because one he doesn't believe Blago did anything wrong. Blago is essentially committing extortion. That's what Trump did with the president of Ukraine. So if he lets uh, Blago out of prison for doing the same thing he did, then it's his way of saying, see, I did nothing wrong. And as I said, number two, uh, they both share 
uh, a hatred for the federal prosecutors who are coming after them. And so now Blago will be a very useful tool. Uh, so that's why he did it, J.B. And, and now J.B. saying, I'm not going to talk about it. Probably, he probably said that too, right? D, is that his Just like, Lori, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Like, it's going to disappear. <laughs> we're not going to talk about it anymore. Okay, it's going to disappear. It's like centrist telling me all the time, Ben, don't talk about the, the mean things that Michael Bloomberg said about women down through the years. Why? Because then Trump will be able to use that. I'm like, you think Trump doesn't know this? He's not going to use it? So if you pretend as though Blago doesn't exist, folks, is that going to mean he doesn't exist? He's not having a rally, a MAGA hat rally for Trump? Come on, folks. It's, it's a real thing. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. All right. No more Blago talk. Let's finally talk about that budget address, huh? Oh, come on. I want more Blago talk. Oh, we're done. Oh, okay. And if you were to ask any of your friends or family of the left-leaning persuasion about Governor Pritzker's 2021 budget plans, they describe it with words like promising, hopeful, mm -hmm. inspiring. Vendrowski, what were your overall thoughts on the budget address? Promising, hopeful, inspiring. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. No, man. I uh, I got to give Pritzker. But first of all, let me just say this about budgets. Can I just take a moment to say this about budgets? Whose name's on that banner right there? Uh, ben Jerome. Oh, that's you. Uh, yeah. Dude, your show. Do whatever you want. Uh, let me just look at that banner. Oh, yeah, I love that banner. All right, uh, let's get back to the budget. Budgets are projections. So, you know, they project uh, whether it's a mayor or a governor or a president, you project that you're going to take in X amount of dollars uh, in taxes and uh, whatever revenues, and then you're going to spend Y amount. Uh, and then magically, when you make the budget, you, you project just enough incoming money to meet all your expenditures and you call it a balanced budget. You're just making the stuff up, folks. I, I I think in general we should move away. I think the public is so cynical about the budget addresses anyway. Nobody pays attention. There's a reason why people are paying attention to Blago as opposed to the budget because there's something more, I don't know, real about what Blago's doing. You know what I'm saying? It's about raw exercise of power. Now, the budget is a very important process. Obviously, who gets what and who pays what uh, is a very important uh, aspect of government. Uh, but, you know, it's not really like a truthful exercise. A lot of games are being played. And in this particular case, what, uh, what Pritzker has done essentially uh, is given the, the people of Illinois a choice. And the choice is this. If you vote for his fair tax initiative in November... You, he, uh, Pritzker, will spend that money on stuff you like, like education, et cetera, and so forth. If you don't vote for that uh, fair tax proposal in November, then he, Pritzker, will have no choice but to cut the budget. Now, as a supporter of the fair tax initiative, I'm saying right on. Good job. Now, unlike Ben Jarofsky, our Illinois friends of the conservative persuasion, well, they're nowhere near as optimistic doomed <laughs> frightening and of course what kind of hippie crap is this <laughs> our words are illinois right-wingers have been spouting from the mouth since wednesday's budget address uh, and guys yes we get it we're smart and they are not but we can't just live in liberal land 24 7 okay we gotta know what the other side is saying so that's why the following comes from the uber right-wing media outlet wirepoints.org i get their emails every day <laughs> Every day I get their emails, along with the tea party. I know what they're up to. Now, Ben, I'm going to read a paragraph or two from this, and please feel free to weigh in with, oh, come on, man, <laughs> whenever you see fit. Uh, okay. Right. Uh, let me just hear the whole thing, and then I'll do a giant come on, man. Here we go. If you've been following Illinois budgets for some time, it's deja vu all over again. Ooh. An unbalanced budget, no reforms, more spending, 
And of course, more tax hikes. <laughs> Governor Pritzker <laughs> unveiled his $42 billion state budget for 2021 this week. The budget increases spending by $2 billion, or 4.1% over 2020, and relies on the passage of a progressive tax amendment to appear balanced. Wait, tell me, about, did they use the word progressive? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Hmm. Okay, go on. In his speech, the governor once again rejected any attempt to get retirement debts under control through a pension amendment, insisting in Instead, that a progressive income tax uh, is a, I don't know what that word is, uh, is a P-A-N-A-C-E-A? Panacea. I've never heard of that word in my life. Community college. Mm-hmm. Pritzker is making the same mistake he did last year. He's failing to tackle Illinois' deep problems. For sure, it's not a budget for a state that's just one notch from a junk credit rating. It's not a budget that deals with the nation's worst pension crisis, the second highest property taxes, the second worst rate of out-migration, and failing real home values. Instead, it's a budget that gives billions more to a political class that has proven to be the most corrupt in the nation, and that will only invite more abuse. All right. Political class that's proven uh, to be the most corrupt in the nation, like a certain Rod Blagojevich, perhaps? Oldwire.com or whatever you are. What's it called again? Wire.com? You get it every day. It's wirepoints.org. All right. Well, org.com. What's the difference? All right. Now, oh, political class that's corrupt. Like a certain Rod Blagojevich? Like a certain mega hat wearing Rod Blagojevich? I'll be really interested to see if Oldwire and all the other right-wingers in the state of Illinois that are opposed to the Fair Tax Initiative continue to use Rod Blagojevich as the poster child for corruption in Illinois now that he's a mega hat wearer who's supported by Donald John Trump. You were wrong, I should say. They're smart. We're not. They're the ones who run the world, D. Don't get that. We're the ones in this little bubble, okay? They're the ones who control Fox News. So don't get it twisted, man. So they're smart. We're not. But I'm just pointing this one out. I'm really going to enjoy this one. I want to see if the right-wingers in the state of Illinois who talk about the political class that feeds off of you, the the regular people of Illinois, uh, who would, buy, by the way, be the beneficiaries of a progressive income tax. If they're going to use Rod Blagojevich as their poster child, now that Rod's a MAGA hat wearing supporter of Donald Trump, I don't think they will be. Uh, they're going to go back to old Michael Joseph Madigan. <laughs> you know, by the way, Trump, I, I'm going to ask a favor, man. Why stop with Blago? Let's pardon Louis Arroyo. Let's pardon Martin Sandoval. Let's go pardon Ed Burke, your good pal, uh, who was your property tax lawyer. He saved you a couple million dollars, I want to say, on property taxes. By the way, is uh, are they do they have a picture of Ed Burke in there? No. no. Oh, isn't that interesting? They pick and choose which members of the, uh, what do they call it, the uh, political class, the elite political class to uh, use to fire up the masses. Got a bunch of frauds there. Okay, guys, you know what it is? They don't want the fair tax to pass because they want to starve government and they don't want to pay taxes. Uh, And that's basically their agenda. And it has been their agenda uh, since Rauner, their guy, was the governor. So there you are, everybody. That's the latest in what's going on locally today. Of course, we'll keep you posted on these stories as today's program rolls along. If you're listening on the live stream chat, feel free to weigh in on these stories as well. Uh, We'll be reading your comments a little later on in the program today. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. It's the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. 
food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. Chicagoland Cremation Options. Options.com. One more time. Chicago Land Cremation Options.com. Eroding beaches on Chicago's lakefront, warmer winters in the upper Midwest, microplastics in our water. What can any one person do? Our best hope for saving the planet and ourselves is through the power of we. Get to the ninth annual One Earth Film Festival, the Midwest premier environmental film festival, March 6th through the 15th. 26 films, 48 events, four counties engage with filmmakers and experts. Venues include Tesla Gold Coast. That's correct. <laughs> Loyola University, Plant Chicago, Old St. Patrick's Church, Chicago Cultural Center, Lake Theater in Oak Park, and Oak Park Oak and more. Pork. <laughs> Sounds delicious. <laughs> Go to oneearthfest.org. That's oneearthfilmfest.org. One more time, One Earth filmfest.org commercial break over welcome back to the ben jarofsky show live from the chicago sun times you think a guy named jarofsky would know how to pronounce every single name that came in front of him but i've just discovered i butchered the name of our next guest uh bronco march teach is that good enough that is a that that's is good a, enough yeah yeah i now, think that was it that yeah, that was perfect. Oh, you know what's annoying? He acts like he knew. You, <laughs> no, he Bronco. said it during the break. <laughs> I can tell you, Bronco, before the show, how do you pronounce this guy's name? And now, uh, no, Ben, it's a merch teacher. Oh, when is this show over today? You're driving me nuts. Uh, I just have to say, people are like, where's Miles? Miles couldn't be here today. He's here every Thursday. Bronco, where is Miles today? He is uh, in the Big Easy. Uh, he's going for Mardi Gras. So he's, is uh, that where he is? That's where he is, yeah. I, I wish I, there was something cooler or like, kind of more journalistic, I could say. But no, he's just having fun. Uh, yeah, no, I was, I was uh, saying, I thought he was on the coast, but... Well, I guess that is kind of a coast. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, Miles, I mean, he's alluded to you many times, Bronco. He's talked about your articles in, in these times. Uh, you're a journalist. You write for In These Times and Jacobin. Uh, give folks a little you know, background on who you are, where that accent comes from, etc. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I uh, am originally from uh, Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, uh, hence uh, the unpronounceable name. And then uh, <laughs> my, I grew up in New Zealand, uh, spent most of my life there. Uh, and I'm at the moment living in, uh, in Toronto, uh, but uh, we'll probably be stateside soon. Uh, my, my lovely wife lives here uh, and we're sort of going through the, the immigration process for that. And uh, so how'd you find your way to journalism? Uh, I, I did history in university. I, I specialized in U.S. history, sort of. Uh, that, that's a long story as well, and I won't, I won't bore you with that. But um, eventually, I, I traveled to the U.S. for a year, got a visa here, uh, you know, just a straight year. You can't extend it or anything. 
I did several internships, one of which was uh, in these times, made some connections, uh, basically went back home with with no uh, career prospects, and uh, mm. thankfully Jacobin was like, hey, do you want to do, do some writing for us? And uh, the rest is history, I guess. So how'd you find your way to the politics that you have? I always ask younger people this, mm. you can make so much money, more money if uh, you, you go the other way. You'll, it's always going to be that way. Uh, you sacrifice so much when you go into journalism, one, but particularly when you go to lefty journalism. So how'd you find your way to this? Yeah, I, uh, I was always interested and, and passionate about, you know, justice, social justice, racial justice, you know, what have you. Uh, I think that's sort of just who I am. A lot of my politics is an extension of who I am uh, and my personal beliefs about how we should treat others and what kind of world we should have. Uh, but also a lot of it was a study of history. Uh, so, you know, looking at the way that social movements and grassroots movements have pushed uh, political change and, and also getting, uh, you know, when you study history, you realize that just because things are a certain way now or uh, uh, or were a certain way maybe even 10 years ago doesn't mean that they were that way uh, 10 years before that or 30 years before that or 100 years before that. And, you know, we can go on and on incrementally. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting that you talk about grassroots movements pushing social change. We'll get to t uh, the debates. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the debates already today, last night's uh, Democratic debates. But, Bronco, one of the points that so many centrists use against Bernie Sanders is that he's destined for failure. That the notion that a grassroots movement can bring change uh, is a pipe dream. They talk, I think somebody on the stage called it, a, it may have been Amy Klobuchar at one of the debates called it a pipe dream. It's one of the centrists were calling it a pipe dream. Mm. And, and so they asked Bernie, how are you going to do this? And Bernie goes, we're going to have a movement. And you could just see the collective eyes rolling in the centrists. And then they tell me, all my centrist friends tell me, it doesn't happen that way. It's powerful people with a lot of money who use that money uh, to get a little bit of incremental changes here. And you have to be satisfied with those incremental changes. That's how the world works, Ben. Get over this Bernie, starry-eyed, socialism, grassroots movement. What's your response to that? I mean, just look at history. Uh, the civil rights movement, uh, the labor movement of, of, of the 20th century and, and of the 19th century even, I mean, the, the ferocious battles uh, between labor and, and capital in those, uh, in those uh, decades. Uh, look at, you know, the gay rights movement. Look at even under Obama. Obama shifted on uh, marriage equality and on immigration because he was getting a lot of flack from activist groups who were uh, interrupting his speeches, who were heckling him, uh, who were just generally making life kind of a little bit harder for him, uh, especially as he was looking towards the 2012 election. Uh, so uh, the idea, I mean, there's this kind of pitch to realism, right? That, oh, it's only realistic. Social movements aren't a realistic thing. But to be honest, that is the most unrealistic thing. If you look at history, if you look at the evidence, it's always grassroots movements that have uh, created the space and pushed politicians to do what, what they have to do, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm just going to make a, uh, just take a brief exception to the one example you use, something I've been, I follow closely, Obama and his uh, ever-shifting evolutionary attitudes toward gay marriage. Uh, when he first ran, just point this out, as state senator in a very liberal district in Hyde Park, he was for gay marriage. It's impossible for anybody to look at Barack Obama's background and think that he would be anything but for gay marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, when you consider the liberal background, background he had growing up in Hawaii, going to Columbia University for law school, etc., being a commuter. Uh, and then, of course, when he was had wider ambitions to be a senator from Illinois, he suddenly was worried that he might get backlash. So he just said, oh, I, my religious beliefs have... <laughs> 
Sorry, Bronco. I can't get through this. Is my religious beliefs have just made me rethink, uh, and now I'm against gay marriage. And then I think it was more or less, well, I've been successfully reelected. I've got, uh, you know, they can't kick me out of office. All of a sudden, not only for gay marriage, Bronco, he's got like the gay flag plastered all over the White House. What a cynical. I mean, politicians, they go uh, in the path of least resistance, right? They, they, they want to get reelected. They don't want to uh, shake up too many feathers. Not all politicians, obviously. You know, we saw some politicians maybe last night that, that are a little bit, bit more uh, brave, but uh, a lot of politicians are. And, you know, with Obama, I'm sure that he personally, of course, was for marriage equality. And yeah, like you said, he was very clearly kind of rewriting his own history and beliefs uh, for what he thought was what the electorate wanted. But it was the the uh, the gay rights movement that was really creating the space for people like him to say, actually, you know, what? I'm, I'm coming out uh, again for gay marriage. I, <laughs> I, I, I changed my mind again. Now, well, that does actually what you just said you were getting. And I think of what uh, centrists say. Uh, they always they tell activists, all right, here, you keep doing your little activist thing. And when you stir up enough trouble and make it uncomfortable for me to uh, be where I am right now, I'll move to where you are and I'll come up with some excuse to say, oh, I've rethought things, you know. And uh, But that's generally the, the relationship between uh, mainstream politicians and activists. Bernie's upsetting that apple cart a little bit. Talk about that. Yeah, well, Sanders is, <laughs> the reason why he's so threatening, or one of the reasons why he's so threatening is, yeah, centrists have been saying for years, you can't, you can't push too much. You can't be too bold. You can't, you know, we have to lie about these things like uh, our support for, for certain uh, social issues, whether it's uh, marriage equality or, or trans rights. Uh, you know, we can't talk that much about that because it'll turn off the electorate. And Sanders' entire career has been saying things that have been, that, that are meant to be at least in the, uh, you know, Washington bubble, uh, dangerous or unelectable or radical. And then, you know, he keeps getting reelected. He, it, if you look at his record, there's actually a really great piece uh, on Jacobin by uh, Matt Carp. He's a historian at Harvard. He looked at uh, Sanders' uh, electoral performances uh, through the 90s uh, in Vermont. And Vermont is a Republican state. Uh, Burlington may be a, a sort of liberal city, but a lot of that state is very rural, very conservative. A lot of people, when Sanders first ran, thought, well, how can a guy who speaks with a thick Brooklyn accent, who has this wild hair, like <laughs> shirt, how the hell is he going to get uh, a farmer in rural Vermont to vote for him? And somehow he wins with these huge, uh, always outperforms uh, Democratic candidates in Vermont. So this idea that, uh, one, that he's unelectable specifically is, is really challenged by the facts, but also the idea that, yeah, you have to kind of hide your true beliefs because people just just. Uh, can't handle the truth. You know, it's 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 bunk. His career shows that, that it really is bunk. All right, let's get into last night's debate. Uh, and uh, number one, we'll start with the um, what what I call it the, uh, the the pounding that Michael Bloomberg took last night. Uh, I, I even my centrist friends would have to admit, at least off the record, they would admit that was a very weak. Uh, performance. If you were a Bloomberg fan, you have to have walked away from that being a little unsettled, very disappointed. I showed a complete inability to take a punch and then do a counter punch in boxing. I'm a big boxing fan. Uh, so uh, he, he just, uh, he, he didn't, wasn't able to defend himself. Uh, it was almost as though he was irritated that they would dare to insult him. That's my view of it. 
What was your view of Bloomberg's performance? Uh, yeah, I thought that was a terrible, terrible night for him. You know, uh, everyone always talks about who are the winners uh, and the losers, and obviously this is all completely subjective, but I do feel like the general consensus that I've seen among pretty much everyone is that he was the loser of that night. Just not only did he take a pounding, uh, and, you know, they attacked uh, Sanders as well, but the thing is Bloomberg just couldn't uh, mount any sort of defense. He couldn't even uh, muster an explanation for, for things that you would think he must have known were coming. You know, the stuff about stop and frisk, the stuff about the, the NDAs, the treatment of women uh, in, his, uh, in his company, all this kind of thing. And um, I think that was the failure. You know, when people watch these debates, uh, it's kind of a cliche to say that they're not really that much about policy, which is true to an extent. Um, but there is a large part of it that people are just watching and they're seeing, okay, how is this person, based on what I'm seeing here, going to perform against Donald Trump in a debate? You know, how are they going to look? And Bloomberg looked very weak, just just hit after hit after hit with just really, sometimes just pathetic explanations, you know. Oh, I didn't realize the soft and frisk, it got out of hand, whoops. Uh, you know, an explanation he's already tried and, and, of course, has been, you know, doesn't match up with the actual record, so. Or the perhaps the most p- uh, pathetic moment in the debate in terms of Bloomberg, uh, when I, I think it was Elizabeth Warren who was coming at him strong on the non-disclosure agreements that uh, he had signed with various women who worked for his corporation, uh, who, who would then drop their lawsuits, and no one knows like really what they were accusing him of or his company of, and uh, how much money he paid them because of his non-disclosure agreements, and he dismissed it as well. They just didn't like jokes I made. Man, <laughs> that may have been the worst moment I've ever seen in a debate at uh, this uh, in this stage. There was a there was an audible groan, wasn't there, from the from the audience? With I mean, that's always bad. I feel like that audience is sort of primed to just applaud for everything, mm-hmm. everything and anything. Uh, and the fact that they just uh, reacted that negatively to that, I think, shows how unconvincing and just terrible that answer was. But yeah. All right. Well, Bronco, let me ask you this question before we move on to Bernie and how he did in debate. Do you, not that you're speaking for all Bernie Sanders uh, type uh, or lefties or all left of center journalists, et cetera, but do you think there's any way, given Bloomberg's past and, and his, his record, uh, that sort of the left wing of the Democratic Party will embrace him as the standard bearer, even against Trump? I think it's important to know with Sanders, uh, even though he, he is a socialist, a democratic socialist, he, uh, I think at heart, is a radical. He, as a politician, is a pragmatist. Uh, what he's putting forward is not a socialist program. Uh, it's a, uh, as he puts it, a continuation of, of the New Deal, a sort of finishing off of the job of, uh, of, of Roosevelt back in the 30s. Um, and, you know, it's stuff that is basically the norm in a lot of um, uh, in, in a lot of uh, Western democracies in Europe, for example. Now, will we'll maybe getting some of those wins provide the opportunity to, to push beyond that? Of course. But I think ultimately Sanders' platform is a pretty uh, normal kind of democratic voter mm-hmm. wish list. You know, it's in theory what the party has been saying that they're for for, for a century. I mean, you know, this, this whole push now with the Democrats saying, oh, single payer is too dangerous, it'll never happen, it's unpopular. The party... Universal healthcare has been a priority for the party through the entire 20th century, up to up to seemingly 2016, mm. when they decided actually no, we don't want to do the same anymore. Um, so I think 
I think a lot of it is fear. I think if Sanders ends up winning, not just nomination, but the presidency, uh, I think a lot of Democrats will uh, kind of come around him. I think there will definitely be a lot of conservative and corporate funded Democrats who will, uh, you know, do the bidding of uh, of the people that that. Uh, they get their money from and, and try and oppose him. But uh, yeah, it'll probably, to some extent, it will, I think, show a split in the Democratic Party who's sort of on the side of, you know, the grassroots uh, and, and, and working class people and who's on the side of basically the people who have controlled the party for decades. Actually, what I was asking you about is, uh, is there any way that the left to center part of the party would support Bloomberg, given his background? Ooh, that's a, ooh, yeah, that's a, that's a dicey, much dicey <laughs> question. Uh, I mean, I think I think there's a split. You know, you look at someone like uh, like Noam Chomsky, he was asked this question and his answer was, Yes, I would absolutely vote for Bloomberg against Trump. Um, and, and I would agree with that. I think uh, Bloomberg is terrible. He'll be one degree, I want to say better, but he'll, he will maybe, he'll be less reactionary than Trump in some, some instances. Um, but I think the, the bigger thing with nominating someone like Bloomberg uh, and, and, you know, God, God help us if that is the choice. <laughs> But hopefully, and hopefully it's not. But if that is the choice, yeah. uh, you know, you can vote for Bloomberg as a sort of stopgap measure to take Trump out. Uh, uh, you know, because Trump is, is, you know, we're on a ticking time clock with climate change and so many other things. Um, so getting Trump out for that reason alone is important. But it would not be enough to just vote for him. I think a lot of leftists would uh, vote for him potentially and then organize against him afterwards. Um, now, this is this is just me. I. You know, I think there are a lot of people. I, you know, certainly that I see uh, the tweets, uh, people who are, you know, uh, left-wing people in the U.S. Uh, political scene who are saying, "I would absolutely not vote for Bloomberg." Uh, but yeah, I, you know, take that, take that as you want. No, that is. A, a, I did not know that Noam Chomsky had made that comment. I, I missed that. Someone emailed him, and they, you know, they put a screenshot of it on Twitter. Uh, they were actually angry at him for saying this. <laughs> <laughs> my, I love my beloved lefties. They're mad at Noam Chomsky. The guy's ninety-some year old. Le lefties give him a break okay gave you his opinion oh man see that's so unfair that's the thing like uh, bernie gets so much abuse uh on the stage last night for the attitude of so many of his left to center uh, supporters like he controls them this is i mean uh, bronco i think i really do think it's unfair knowing lefties the way i do you don't control a lefty you know what i'm saying it's like yeah. He or she has his mind, and he or she is going to speak it. Yeah, and <laughs> you don't want to take the left on on the internet. You know, this this is all the left does at the moment is posting. No, that's, I mean that's a, that's an exaggeration, but a lot of people. I post actually think all you're uh, you're onto something there. But well, I don't I don't want to completely. You know, there's a lot of really great organizing happening in DSA uh, uh, for Sanders and a whole host of other issues. But also, a lot of people are online. This yeah. is this is what they're doing. You know, do you really want to take people on on their sort of uh, you know uh, home perch? I guess. No, I I. Um... The left goes after Bernie, too. I, I follow Bernie's Instagram feed. This is a tangent within a tangent, Bronco. So Bernie did this uh, appeal that he put out about how he's proud to, of being Jewish uh, and how being Jewish has shaped his worldview, uh, made him a champion for social justice, okay? So I'm reading. The, I listened to this, and then I, I was moved by it. And then I started reading the responses that came from all corners of uh, the political spectrum. And there were a lot of lefties, like... What are you doing? I mean, they were mad at him for bringing religion into uh, the matter, or they were mad at him for not taking the opportunity to speak out for the Palestinian cause, or they were they're just generally mad at him. Uh, you're, you know, you're just playing their game, Bernie. And so he was getting much criticism as he was against right wingers 
who who were saying, oh, yeah, now you're just saying this because you want the Jewish vote and you're not really Jewish enough. I don't, people are really weird on well, the Internet. Yeah, right? it's the Internet. This is this is the thing that frustrates me about this whole thing. It's like uh, if you go spend any time on Twitter uh, or the, the comment section, I don't know why you would, but the comment sections of various news sites uh, and you will find some of the worst bile, uh, you know, you could possibly find anywhere. I very rarely meet people who... Uh, who say a lot of the things that they say that, or that, that Bernie Sanders supporters are kind of accused of saying uh, uh, online as if that's sort of representative of everyone. I don't really meet people like that in real life. Uh, maybe the odd person, but but uh, otherwise. And the idea that they're uniquely bad, I mean, uh, yeah, again, go online. There's supporters of Kamala Harris who are still, you know, diehards for her, who, uh, even though she's out, uh, who say all manner of horrible things online to, to other candidates. Uh, there's Elizabeth Warren supporters who say some really nasty things to uh, to either Sanders people or you know people in his campaign. So I I just don't buy that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, but your point, your ultimate point, is a very good one. I'm going to steal it and use it all the time. But I'll try to give you credit for it. <laughs> and that is, uh, there will be a segment of the left that will uh, support. They'll follow Noam Chomsky. I know I would. I would vote for Bloomberg over Trump. Uh, climate change being probably reason number one. Mm. And uh, choice, judges, you go down the list of things. Uh, but um, yes, the organizing against him to keep move, pushing him. Right. Like, I don't know if you saw this at the debate where all of, in the last couple days or so, he came out with a proposal that would uh, tax Wall Street. And all, mm. we call it here LaSalle Street tax in the city of Chicago. People talk about taxing the Board of Trade, uh, the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange for years. It goes nowhere. But but Bloomberg, of all people, put that out as a prospect. Uh, so, you know, maybe he is feeling pressure from the Bernie people to be more of a a Democrat, if you follow what I'm mm-hmm. saying. So, yes, I think you're right about that. All right, let's go back with the, the probably Bloomberg's proudest moment of the night, if you were Bloomberg ranking it. And that's the, uh, the punch he took at Bernie having to do with, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, Bronco, um, he's a millionaire socialist with three homes. When you heard that, what was your thoughts? Uh, this, this is an old attack. Uh, I mean, look, Sanders is a millionaire. I think the, the correct thing is it's, it's not about getting rich. It's about the uh, idea of, of creating a political structure that is going to you know, either redistribute uh, wealth uh, or, you know, uh, in other ways, use uh, the wealth that someone has uh, built up and put into, into social programs to help people. It doesn't bother me that, that Sanders is a million dollars. I think he got that from his book in, what, 2017? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the three houses thing, I mean, uh, the guy is a, a senator. He has a house in Burlington that he lives in, his, his home. He has a house in D.C. Uh, uh, where he has to spend a significant amount of time, and I think he has a holiday home. That's sort of a, a kind of upper-middle-class... Uh, aspiration i don't think it's like i don't think it's particularly corrupting you know to have a holiday home uh and i think when people use this attack it's they're really kind of grasping at straws i mean again the the problem with bloomberg isn't just that he's fantastically rich and I, you know by the way what he's worth 60 billion dollars i mean i'm not i can't do the math here uh, <laughs> but put a million bucks into 60 billion and and you'll see just how uh strat- what kind of stratospheric wealth we're actually talking about but it's not just that. It's that you know Bloomberg doesn't want to fight for a political structure that will actually tax him more and and redistribute that money. He wants to keep it all for himself. 
I think Sanders will be very happy to pay, you know, whatever. I'm not sure how much he would pay uh, under the income brackets, the tax brackets now. But yeah. Well, I can guarantee you uh, that will be a line of attack that Donald Trump will use against Bernie Sanders mm. uh, if Bernie is the nominee. Guarantee you absolutely, positively, we'll probably see pictures of all homes. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how the game is played in this country. Uh, I'm not sh- certain how successful it would be because my sense is uh, if you have if you have a bias against who Bernie Sanders is, um, whether he has three homes or one home, mm. it won't really matter. You follow me, Bronco? If it's mm. like if he has any home, he has a house. You know, he's not living in a in poverty. You know, that's general. Mm. That's how that's how often it's done. If you're a socialist, you're supposed to live in poverty. Right. You know what I'm saying? If you're if you're poor, uh, you're only supporting left wing policies because uh, they benefit you. If you're rich, uh, it's because you're a hypocrite. You know, so it's there's no way to win here. There's you know they they attack him on the same uh, the same time for. When he was uh, a poor single dad, that you know they call him uh, a deadbeat, and you know they say that he was lazy and all this stuff. So again, there's no way to win. I think they're going to come at him with with anything. I mean, I think also this shows you that far from this persona of a bomb throwing radical that that people have about Sanders is that he's ultimately a, a pragmatist who will work within that system. You know, as he said in that debate yesterday, this was probably a good preview of what he might say against Trump if he hits him with the uh, with the house thing. He said, uh, you know, like a lot of families in Vermont, I have a beach house, you know, and I'm a senator. I live in D.C. I, to me, that seems completely reasonable. Uh, and I feel like it probably will be to a lot of people. Uh, I agree with you on that point. Uh, I don't think it'll be, let's put it this way, I don't think it'll swing the election. I just can mm-hmm. anticipate the ugliness and the nastiness of the debate. What was your thoughts when you heard them having that exchange? I think it was Sanders and Bloomberg uh, on the whole issue of social inequity and whether we should have billionaires in this country. Uh, I actually don't remember that that segment. I, I was in these times party, so there was a, there was at one point there was a lot of uh, talking. So I, I actually you might have to, to give me a, oh, it was a little a, bit it of a was, reminder. It may have been one of my uh, favorite moments of debate because they were really getting at something uh, mm. essential. It wasn't just uh, three homes in in you know um, uh, in Vermont, or it wasn't really unfair. Like the way they blend socialism with communism mm. you know totalitarianism that that mm. this, those are just cheap shots but this got into a, a substantive issue of whether it is fair to have a society in which people are allowed to accumulate so much wealth so like you talked about the difference between a million dollars and a billion dollars and then the difference between a billion dollars and 60 billion dollars we have a governor here in the state of illinois jb pritzker who's probably in this building today uh who's worth i believe three billion dollars that is so, I mean, when you just think about the difference between three billion and sixty billion, and so then the issue that Bloomberg and and Sanders were raising last night is whether it's fair to allow one person, whether it's healthy for society to allow one person to accumulate so much money. And Bernie was actually saying, no, it's not, mm. which sort of strikes at the whole ethos we have in this country that you could do whatever you want. The sky's the limit. And so the notion of making $60 billion, somehow you've earned it. Well, I think there's two things. I think there's the, the kind of moral, ethical component of this. You know, is it, is it moral to have or to hoard so much wealth uh, when so many people, not just in the U.S., of course, there's 
tremendous poverty here, but around the world have so little. Uh, and to just keep that money and to sort of just sit on it while it could be used to both get us out of the climate crisis and to, to uh, end or at least alleviate uh, world poverty. So th that's one aspect of it. But I think we're also seeing with Bloomberg's candidacy and then you know uh, things like the Jeffrey Epstein uh, scandal, the Jeffrey Epstein case, this is what happens, uh, one outcome of allowing people to just build up these insane uh, amounts of wealth that they can then use for whatever purpose. You know, Epstein, part of the reason, a big part of the reason why he had such a, uh, an easy ride through the criminal justice system, um, you know, again, I, in case people aren't familiar with the case, well, you should Google it, but Jeffrey Epstein was a billionaire uh, pedophile, a, a sex trafficker who was taking advantage of, of young girls uh, all over the world. He got sent to jail. He got the sweetheart deal. He was barely in jail. He was actually abusing girls while he was in jail because they would let him out. All this is because he had money. Uh, uh, not just you know a, a large amount of money, but a colossal, unimaginable amount of money. Um, he used that to buy people uh, influence among politicians. Uh, he used it to buy influence among uh, intellectuals and, and, and scientists and, and all this kind of thing. He, was, uh, he had a ranch in New Mexico that he wanted to use, and this is in the New York Times, this is not me just making stuff up, you know. Uh, he wanted to use that ranch to artificially uh, inseminate with his sperm uh, a whole army of uh, young women. That were, so he would seed the human race with his DNA. This was his, maybe outlandish, maybe impossible. This is what he wanted to do. And Billy, you know, Bloomberg now, we're seeing he's using a fraction of his fortune, tiny fraction of his fortune, um, to basically buy uh, the election or try and buy the election uh, uh, raise his, his polling, um, you know, what, $360 million he's already spent, maybe even more, mm -hmm. um, on round-the-clock ads. I mean, this is the problem, is that uh, that much money, it's not even about the ethical nature of it. It is about the practical nature of, uh, are we going to allow people to build up that kind of power that they can then use unaccountably, you know? Who knows what, how many other Epstein-type people are out there and what they're doing with, with, you know, the billions and billions they've got. Uh, just hearing you go off on Epstein, we've discussed Epstein on the show many times. Leonard Goodman's been on the show. We did a deep dive with uh, attorney Leonard Goodman and urge everybody to check it out. Uh, one of Leonard's theories, I don't know if you know Leonard, uh, is that Epstein was perhaps an operative uh, for the CIA, and that's how he got away with it. Uh, I urge everybody to check out that interview, uh, the, the conversation I had with uh, Leonard uh, not too long ago. Uh, it's, it, have you written about it? Uh, excuse my ignorance in asking this. Have you written about the Epstein case? Uh, a little bit. Uh, I've I followed it fairly closely. Uh, I wrote one piece. Uh, you know, I was working on this this book about Joe Biden for six months, and so I I didn't uh, have tons of time to to do lots of pieces about it. About it. I mean, it's a fascinating case, obviously, and and outrageous. Uh, I wrote a thing. Um, uh, for Jacobin magazine, so uh, JacobinMag.com. Uh, I believe the title is. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein is the face of the billionaire class, basically making this this point. You know, look at all the terrible things that, that we found out he was able to do or planning to do with this huge uh, hoard of, of wealth that he had. And um, this is exactly why we need to basically arrest the the economic concentration of, of power uh, among among billionaires and and others who are maybe a notch below that. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty clear uh, in the aftermath that Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein was a lunatic. Uh, putting it mildly and uh and yet you're right his wealth bought over alliances instead of people being repelled you can just imagine like they go spend an evening with jeffrey epstein 
and listen to his lunacy. And then you walk, walk home and you're talking to your friend or your husband, or your wife, whatever. And you're like, man, that guy's crazy. But then you, you know, he, he invited us back to his house next week. Well, he's worth like, you know, gazillion dollars. <laughs> Maybe he'll fund my project. So you gotta go sit and listen to his nuttiness. You know, but, but then you pretend like, oh, Jeff, he, you're making some really good points there, man. Well, it's a lot easier than, uh, you know, actually having to make friends. You can just sort of dole out money. <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, you mentioned um, Joe Biden, the work you've done on Joe Biden. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, I uh, wrote uh, a series of pieces in 2018 about Biden because he looked like he was running. Guy had a 40-year record. I'd, I've sort of I've done a bunch of pieces about candidates before that, like Kamala Harris and, and Kirsten Gilbrand doing kind of deep dives into their histories. And, I th you know, Biden's the next logical choice. This guy's been around for, for yeah, nearly nearly half a century. Um, and so I wrote that, got a pretty good response, uh, and it was actually uh, your your uh, friend, Miles, yours and mine friend, uh, Miles, who uh, advised me, hey, you should write a book about this. Because um, uh, this guy's probably going to be the nominee. Maybe mm -hmm. he might even be uh the president who knows um so i uh, there was a sort of there's a there's a, a longer story to it but ultimately uh, uh jacobin uh funded the book uh the magazine that i work for and it has been um published by uh verso um so it's 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 out there now it's it's sort of i i try and do two things with the book on the one hand i'm kind of making a uh, I guess a polemic, uh, making a case against Biden. So this is, the, if you look at his history, this is what makes him uh, particularly ill-suited to face Trump. Um, but I'm also, uh, you know, kind of going through his record, showing what he has done through his career, and and genuinely trying to explain why uh, he has the politics that he does, and, mm -hmm. and why he has the, um, the the beliefs, and why he's done what he's done. Which, if you read the book, is uh, pretty bad overall. <laughs> well, I um, I'm going to read the book and then bring you back in the show and talk about the book. Uh, at the moment, uh, I do my rankings all the time. Uh, I, I don't know if I told you this on the phone. Maybe I did. You know, I require all my guests to do rankings. I think I required my next, uh, my the guest after my next guest to do a ranking today. Uh, you know, come on, don't duck and dodge. You got to have three. All right. So, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, though, she's neck and neck with Bernie mm -hmm. after last night. Those are my top two. For the longest time, Andrew Yang was three, uh, but then he dropped out. So now I got my third is Joe Biden, mm -hmm. the subject of your book. Uh, I put Joe Biden ahead of uh, Michael Bloomberg, mm -hmm. uh, Judge. And Amy Klobuchar. So I'm gonna have to read your book. Maybe you convince me, and then I don't know who I'll have at number three. <laughs> uh, Bronco, thank you so much for uh, stepping in today. I appreciate it a lot. We'll get you back whenever you're in Chicago. Uh, I understand you. So you say you're mostly in Canada, but you you come to the Chicago more often. Uh, every now and then, I you know I have to visit my wife, and and uh, she comes to me. <laughs> so I was like, I'm here. So we uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's it's tough, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll make it through. Well, we'll do a, the deep dive on the Biden book. I think that'll be a lot of fun to do. That'd Maybe it's awesome. a bonus. Oh, that'd be great. And please tell everybody listening where they can find, follow you, all that business. Yeah, uh, you know, Jacobin Magazine, obviously, in these times, uh, actually, Lena Goodman is technically paying. Uh, my salary, so that's uh, nice. Uh, I'm one of his. The uh, aforementioned Leonard Goodman was that's on my right. show. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, find me on Twitter at uh, b machetich uh, with 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 an H after a C, which is not how you spell my name, but 
for simplicity's sake. And uh, the book is called Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. You can buy it uh, from the Jacobin website. Just just Google Jacobin uh, uh, Yesterday's Man. It will be in stores, I believe, at the end of this month as well. All right, very good. My next guest, Don Bellar, is going to come on. He's from the Chicago Federation of Labor. When he comes on, he's going to do his New Zealand accent. <laughs> All right? so <laughs> I'll stick around. I, 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 I'm going to hear this. You should have heard him make fun of my New Zealand accent. Brian was like, mm, that sounds like a Chicago and pretend he's from New Zealand. Well, I'm curious to hear if his will also be like a Michael Caine <laughs> Because this is, this is the stock. My friend uh, Eric, who lives in Chicago, he has. He, this is his casual accent for anyone you're British or Australian or New Zealand. Hello, mate. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's sort of whatever. Uh, anyway, thank you very much, Bronco. We're gonna take a break, and Don Villar will be our guest. Stick around, everybody. Hey, everybody. What you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U-E-L-P-I-A-N-I-S-T dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Jeff Manuel. 